All right. Well, come on in and grab a seat. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. We are continuing our study on the last things or the end times, what is called eschatology. And uh, last week, we actually started getting into the good stuff. So we had about three weeks of kind of introduction to set the stage on uh, eschatology in the Old Testament and apocalyptic literature and all these kind of things. And then uh, last week, Jeff gave an excellent lesson on an introduction to the book of Revelation. And uh, he asked a bunch of questions. And the reason those questions are helpful is because the questions themselves really determine how you read the entire book of Revelation. Revelation. God has not given us the book of Revelation that we might be afraid of it or that we might try to predict the exact day of the second coming or something like this. He's given it to the church to encourage us in our faith when we go through difficult times and when we go through persecutions. And so uh, Jeff gave us an intro to Revelation last week. And then today we're going to look at what some of these major symbols are in the book of Revelation. So let me tell you why I'm really excited about this lesson. My hope is that you will be able to take what you learn in this class today, that you'll be able to take this handout. And when you read the book of Revelation, it will all of a sudden unlock this book for you, okay? This is not some sort of weird secret Bible code or something like this. We're simply looking at where most of these symbols occur in the Old Testament, and we're using that to understand a very Jewish book, which is the book of Revelation. Uh, Now, there are uh, a lot of symbols in Revelation. I mean, there are probably uh, over 100. We cannot do all of those today, so I've picked some of the really big ones. But if you have particular questions on uh, what are those weird demon frogs or uh, the woman with the 12 stars on her head, she's Israel, or whatever it might be, let me know. We're happy to, uh, to give you some of those answers during the week. Shoot us an email or, uh, or call us. We're happy to, uh, to help there. But there are a lot of weird things in the book of Revelation, okay? They're weird, one, to us because we don't know our Old Testament as well. How can John write this letter to these Jewish Christians living in Rome and expect them to understand it? Well, it's because they know their Old Testament really well. They don't just read something like beast and just start wondering what that means. That already has a reference for them in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, we also live in a very different worldview from them. So there's all these weird little comments throughout Revelation. So I mentioned one last week where uh, they're measuring the new Jerusalem, and it says that an angel's measurement is the same as a human measurement. And I just think that's an interesting comment. Angel Home Depot and human Home Depot have the same rulers, same measuring tapes. Okay, that's interesting. There's another one where it says, the angel, the one that has authority over fire, and you're like, okay, thanks for that, John. What do you mean it has authority over fire? I didn't think they were like Pokemon or something like this where they can control an element or something, but it'll say that in the text. And so there's a lot of weird things in there, but we're going to go over some of the biggest symbols today. But before we do, let me give you six tips uh, in interpreting the symbols in Revelation. So Jeff gave a bunch of tips last week on interpreting Revelation in general. Let me give you some things you need to know about the symbols in Revelation. First of all, symbols use metaphorical and figurative language. Okay? That's the whole point of a symbol. The symbol is not usually directly this thing that's signified. Okay? It is something that is different. My wedding ring symbolizes that I'm married, but my actual marriage is different than just a wedding ring. Okay? And so there is, uh, there's a lot of metaphorical and figurative language. Now listen to this next point. This is really important. Though the symbol itself will be figurative, the text will have a literal point. To say it another way, there is always a literal point, but the language itself is often hyperbolic, okay? So for example, when it says that there's a sharp double-edged sword that comes out of Jesus's mouth, that is an image, okay? That does not mean that Jesus literally vomits a sword, okay? That's the figure. 
But what is the literal point of that? The literal point is that he does judge with his word. Jesus, who is the word that divides to the uh, joints and marrow, that he judges with his word, with this double-edged sword, that is a true literal point. So does he start coughing and vomit up a sword? No, that's the figure, but the figure always has an actual literal point, okay? Uh, Is the beast literally a big hairy monster? No, but is it beastly? Is it evil? Does it oppose the kingdom of God? Yes, it does, okay? Number three, see if that symbol occurs in the Old Testament. See if that symbol occurs in the Old Testament, okay? That's a huge one. There are not very many direct quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, but please hear this. There are more allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than any other New Testament book. Okay, it is saturated with Old Testament allusions, meaning references that you're supposed to remember as it talks about them from the Old Testament. Okay? Number four, see if that symbol occurs in other non-biblical literature from the time of the New Testament. Some of the things that are referenced in the book of Revelation come to us from things that are written around that time, not things that are in the Bible, but stories and popular writings and things like this going on around the time of the first century. Okay? Number five, now this is a big one. If everyone will just embrace number five, it will get rid of all of the weird end times experts on TV and all of the popular series books that teach a lot of nonsense. It's simply this. Any interpretation that would not have made sense to one, the original first century audience, and two, Christians at other times in church history is a wrong interpretation. Revelation was not just written to you as an American in 2019. Revelation was written to a group of churches in the first century under Roman domination, and it was written to all other churches in church history. Somehow, Jonathan Edwards needs to read Revelation, and God is saying something to him in Revelation. Martin Luther, or Anselm, or Augustine, or the early church, whatever interpretation you have of Revelation has to make sense to its original audience first before it makes sense to us, okay? So let me say it stronger. The Bible was not written to you. It is written for you. It was written to the Christians in Corinth or in Rome or wherever, and it applies to us because we too are Christians, but it has an original audience first and then applies to us by extension. And then number six, I like this one, so I'm gonna read it in a real sarcastic way. Do not read your modern 21st century understanding of politics, America, Iraq, the Ryrie Study Bible, Russia, Fox News, CNN, China, the Left Behind series, the modern state of Israel, pollution-colored full moons, barcodes on your arm, Donald Trump, monster energy drink, or anything from your culture back onto the text. Okay? Amen. That was fun. That was a fun one to write. I'm like, I'm so mad right now. Okay. So those are some preliminary tips in understanding the the symbols in Revelation. Let's now go through what some of these symbols are, and we'll talk about them, okay? We'll talk about them. So again, if we make fun of something that you believe, it's just because we love you and this is our love language, we actually would be happy to have a conversation with you, okay? We make little jokes here because uh, it helps keeps you engaged, and it's also part of what you do as a family. When you sit around at Thanksgiving, you make jokes. The Church of God is a, uh, is a big Thanksgiving uh, feast, if you wanna say it that way, uh, but I know that there are other positions than the ones that I would hold, and I know that there are smart ways to hold those things, so please don't feel like if I make fun of something, I'm making fun of you. I would love to be able to sit down over coffee if you wanna talk more about some of these things. But let's get into the actual symbols. Are you guys ready? Okay, here we go. First of all, the number seven, okay? The number seven. 
There are a lot of different numbers that are used throughout the Bible that have a lot of significance, 40, 1,000, 12. Seven is a really big one. Seven is kind of this Jewish number of wholeness or completeness. You first see this when God creates everything in six days, but it's not really done until the seventh day when God rests, which doesn't mean he's like panting and drinking water. The idea is that God reflects on his glory over the things he has made, which is what we do when we worship God. We reflect on his glory, and you see that that's uh, the idea, but it's used several other times after that, whether there are years of jubilee or whatever it might be. Seven is often this uh, Jewish number for completeness or perfection. Now, not always, okay? It's not always that case. Uh, So uh, sometimes it's just a number that the Bible uses. It doesn't always mean like completeness, but it often does. Now, the the number seven is used a lot through Revelation. There are seven churches, seven stars, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven horns, and many others, okay? That doesn't mean like when the beast has seven horns, you think that's the fullness of horn. That's not the idea. Sometimes the number is just religiously significant, and it doesn't tell you what the significance is, okay? Let me give you a few examples here. Revelation will start off with these seven golden lampstands. These stand for, pun intended, the seven churches to whom the letter is addressed, and by implication, it also has relevance to all churches. So this is a circular letter that is meant to be passed around among these seven churches in Asia Minor, and there's a reason why John chooses these seven churches, because you're supposed to say this isn't just a message for these seven churches, but these other ones over here can be unfaithful. It's meant to extend to all of God's people. It's meant to extend to all churches, okay? Now, how do I know that that's what the lampstands stand for? Revelation 1.20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here's a great tip in interpreting Revelation. If Revelation tells you what something stands for, problem solved, okay? You don't have to look at there and be like, what do the stars stand for? It tells you. It's so great. You have no idea how many people think, man, the, the, the dragon, the red dragon, maybe that's China. It says that the red dragon's the devil, that ancient serpent who is of old, and Satan, okay? So it solves it for you. So anytime Revelation tells you what it is, you should especially pay attention to that. Now, there's another thing that's mentioned there, seven stars. It says that these stand for the seven angels or messengers of the churches. What on earth does that mean? Does that mean that all churches have some sort of angel? We have like a, like a, a McKinney angel or something like this over uh, Parkway. Here's the idea. In Jewish thinking, there was this idea that God directly rules over Israel, and he assigns angels to watch the other nations. It mentions that in, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy, by the way. That is a Jewish concept that is taken into the New Testament, and that's probably what, uh, what John is saying, is that there is some sense in which God has, since angels are ministering spirits to protect humans lest we dash our foot against a stone, there is some sense in which there is spiritual warfare going on, and God sends his angels to help and fight and protect, Okay. Next, this one's going to be pretty obvious, but I think it's really important, the lamb. Who is the lamb standing as if slain, by the way? Did uh, did everybody read Revelation last week? I don't think so, but uh, we encouraged you to. You can still read it. Hang on to these notes and read it later. You have the rest of your life to read it, and by that I mean unless Jesus comes back soon and then you didn't get to read it. Now, Revelation 5, 11 through 14, listen to this. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worship. Notice that Jesus receives worship. He receives equal worship with the Father. He is with the Father on his throne. Why? Because he is the one God. You see Trinitarianism even in Revelation. You've got the Father, you've got the Son, the Lamb, and then you have the sevenfold Spirit of God, if you want to say it that way. Uh, they're mentioned as, uh, as well in another text. But notice that though John and his audience are thoroughgoing monotheists, they're okay worshiping Jesus along with the Father, thinking that the Father and the Son are different, but thinking that there is only one God. You see kind of these beginning seeds of Trinitarianism even in the book of Revelation. Notice that Jesus has already won the victory over the devil through his death and resurrection, that the Messiah conquers by being conquered, okay? That he conquers by being conquered and so do his followers. The way that you overcome in the book of Revelation by the, uh, by the, the blood of the martyrs, by the uh, word of your testimony and these kind of things is often a reference to martyrdom. And here's the big thing you need to understand. The central figure of Revelation is Jesus. Revelation is not a book primarily about weird end time stuff. Revelation is a book about Jesus and how he is going to come and put the world back to rights, despite the fact that from our vantage point, it looks like the beast is winning, okay? What Jesus does is he takes people who, are the, who see themselves as the underdog, the church, and when you get to see it from heaven's perspective, you realize that we are actually the overdog. I don't know what the phrase is. We are actually the ones who will win and be successful, okay? Next, the living creatures with different faces. What are these? These are angels, a type of angel, who worship God. Their different animal and one human faces are meant to show, listen to this, that they represent how all creation worships God. Why do you have an eagle, this thing that flies? Why do you have a human? Why do you have an ox? Why do you have these different things? It's meant to be a symbol of how everything is meant to worship God. There's only one creator, so all of creation is meant to worship God, and the angels demonstrate that for us, if you want to say it that way. Now, by the way, this is interesting. Is this typically what you think of when you think of an angel? It's got like six wings and a bunch of faces, and it's covering up its feet, and it's doing all these other kind of things? No. You have a tendency to think precious moments. Or you have a tendency to think of like this little naked baby angel or like this medieval looking woman that you put at the top of your Christmas tree, like that's supposed to be an angel or whatever it might be. In the Bible, angels are typically terrifying, okay? You would never say to a girl that you were hitting on, you look like an angel, because that means something like you look like a scary man with a sword. And so uh, here you see that these angels look kind of mysterious, look kind of weird, and this is not the first place where this occurs, by the way. Again, we don't know Revelation because we don't know our Old Testament. Ezekiel 1.10, look at this. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle, Okay. So a lot of times it won't be a direct quotation, but there will be this allusion to something like that, these kind of heavenly beings that you see back in the book of Ezekiel. But uh, there's this whole big section on these living creatures. What are they doing? They're worshiping God, demonstrating how all creation should be worshiping God. That's the idea. Everybody with me so far? Okay, let's keep doing revelation-y things. Next, the heavenly council of 24 elders, okay? The heavenly council of 24 elders. Let me give you a few things here. 
They represent God's heavenly counsel as this is intentional political imagery meant to contrast with the political rule of Rome. Psalm 82.1, and there's a lot of places like this in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one. A Psalm of Asaph, God has taken his place in the divine counsel in the midst of the heavenly beings. He holds judgment. Here's the idea. If you were the Roman, Empire, the Roman emperor, you would have counselors, okay? You would sit down at your big table when you made decision and you would be in charge and you would have these counselors. And this is meant to say that there are two kingdoms in conflict here. There's the kingdom of man, there's the kingdom of Rome, there's sin and human rebellion, and then there's God's kingdom, and God sits among his counsel. Now, nobody's actually giving God advice. He needs no counselor, to quote several places from the Old Testament, but this is meant to be direct political imagery in contrast to Rome. You would be used to thinking of the emperor sitting with his senate or sitting with his advisors or something like that. Instead, you're supposed to think of God as sitting with angels and he is the one that is making the real decisions, okay? A few things also to mention about the 24 elders. In Solomon's temple, priests were divided up into 24 orders, okay? That seems interesting with this here, that uh, God's people have become a kingdom of priests, but in Solomon's temple, priests are divided up into 24 orders. And then another thing you need to know is that some interpreters, not all interpreters hold this, okay? So I'm not saying what I'm about to say is definitive, but many interpreters hold that the reason that there is 24 is that uh, you've got the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel, and you have the 12 apostles, okay? By the way, why does Jesus select 12 apostles and not 11 or 13? Wouldn't it be easier just to have at least two more apostles? I mean, that's two more people. Why not 14 apostles? He intentionally selects 12 because he's reconstituting Israel around himself. Israel has 12 tribes. Jesus says, I'm the new Israel. I'm the new temple. I'm the new lawgiver. I'm the greater Moses. And what he does is he calls 12 disciples because he's reconstituting Israel around himself. And so it's important here that you have the number 24. You have the church as kind of the continuation and the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. So some see here a reference to 12 heads of Israel and then the 12 apostles, okay? Next. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, okay? Uh, a few things. Most of Revelation is this, this long judgment sequence, okay? It'll talk about there being a scroll, or it'll say a lot of translations, book. Remember, a book in the first century does not mean what you think of when you think of a book. When you think of a book, you think of what's called a codex. That doesn't come around for a few hundred more years. A codex is where you're turning pages. That's what our books are today. Their books would have been a scroll, so I'm going to draw this incredible scroll. Boom, there it is. There's a scroll, okay? And it would be, have this, you know, up one page that would be kind of flopped over, and you would put seals on it, okay? Five, six, and this last one kind of goes off the edge. Seven, okay? And so the idea is that most of what's going on in Revelation is the unfolding of these different events. You've got seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And so what happens is you open the first seal, which means you're able to read the scroll a little bit. And what does it say? Judgment. You, un you break the second seal. And by the way, it's Jesus who can break the second seal. You can't do it. John cries because he's like, who is worthy to open the seals? And it's Christ. So you open the second seal and you can read a little bit more of the scroll. And so you see there's more judgment. And then finally, when you get to the seventh seal, that begins the first series of trumpets. And someone blows a trumpet and some bad stuff happens. And someone blows another trumpet and some bad stuff happens. And then you get to the seventh trumpet and it begins this pouring out these bowls of wrath. And so what you need to understand, and Jeff mentioned this last week, here's a big key to understanding the book of Revelation because this is a huge part of Revelation. What Revelation is doing is it is giving you these three sets of seven 
talking about God's judgment against sin and his vindication of the righteous. And it tells the same story three times, but it becomes more and more intense each time, okay? It becomes more and more intense each time. So at the seven seals, as you're breaking the seven seals, they come with judgments and they harm a quarter of the earth, okay, one-fourth. The seven trumpets come with judgments and harm one-third of the earth, which is more, okay? 25% is not as much as 33.3 repeating percent, which is how much that the, uh, the, the, the trumpets destroy. And then at the end of the bowl judgments, the entire world is destroyed. They're telling the same story three times, but each time it's becoming more and more severe until God's judgment is complete. Jeff gave the example last week of like a Russian nesting doll. What are those called, Matryoshka or something? I can't remember the name of them. But, you know, you've got this, this, uh, this doll and you open it and there's another doll and you're like, oh my gosh, and you open it and then there's like a thousand dolls in there. Revelation is kind of, these kind of things are kind of like nesting dolls. The only difference is, in a sense, they're getting bigger. Uh, in a sense, what happens is part of the world is destroyed and then John's like, let me tell you the same story from a different angle. More of the world is destroyed. Let me tell you the same thing again from a third angle and by this time, all the world is destroyed. The, the destruction is unlimited. Okay? Everybody with me on that? That's a big part. If you understand that, you'll understand most of Revelation is this unfolding series of judgments. And so if you understand that they're all linked and if you understand that there's recapitulation, that they're telling the same story three times and it's just becoming more and more intense each time, it will really help you understand the book of Revelation. Now, what happens when the seals are open or the trumpets are blown or the bowls are poured out. A lot of times you see these plagues that are poured out on humanity. And guess what those are supposed to reference? The plagues from Egypt, okay? What do people do in Revelation? There's huge hailstones that crush them. Same thing happened with the Egyptians. There's blood. Same thing that happened with the Egyptians. One of the scary things that there are these demons that look like frogs. Same thing with the Egyptians, right, where the frogs are going everywhere. You're supposed to see, in the same way that God judged his enemies, the Egyptians, in the Old Testament, here God is judging his enemies throughout the whole world in a greater degree, okay, in a greater degree. That's the idea of these different kinds of plagues. Everybody with me on that? Okay. Is this fun? I think it's fun. Okay. Again, who cares if it's holy? It's fun. Uh, Next. Let's talk about the four horsemen, okay? Not a reference to professional wrestling, if you, know, if you get that, uh, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the four horsemen. Now, Jared uh, Lawson is now uh, on our staff, and so he has given us now five staff members, so I can't make this joke anymore, but we used, I used to call us the four horsemen of the apocalypse, okay? Jeff is kind of like the rider on the white horse, right? Because he's kind of like the leader, right? I'm clearly the rider on the red horse because he has a sword and he brings war, and I like, like guns and war and these kind of things. Carl is very administrative. He's kind of like the guy that's on the black horse with the scales. You know, he's always like, guys, we're almost out of copy paper. And that's kind of what he's doing on his black horse because he's administrative. Uh, and then, of course, Tim is death. Uh, Tim, is, Tim is on the, uh, the pale horse, and he also has diabetes. So let me give you a few things of what these horses stand for. <clears throat> the four horsemen stand for this, okay? They are natural and political disasters to judge the enemies of God's people. Let me say that again, okay? They are natural and political disasters to judge the enemies of God's people. They are meant to represent, when God pours out his wrath, what does that look like? 
It looks like financial devastation, it looks like physical devastation, it looks like war and conflict, and it looks like death. That's what you're supposed to see. So a few things to note. First of all, the writer here, I remember having to write a big paper on this, the writer here on the white horse is not the same writer on the white horse later. Jesus will come on a white horse later, king of kings, all that kind of stuff with a sword. That is a different reference to this. This is a reference to something that's evil, to something that's demonic, to something that is bad. This is not the same writer on the horse that comes later. So you need to know a few things. First of all, there's a white horse. His rider has a bow and he brings conquering. Okay, let me tell you why this is so interesting. The Romans had these enemies to the east of the Roman Empire and they are called the Parthians. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Parthians, okay? So the Parthians live east of Rome, and uh, they defeated the Romans at a battle called Carre. It's a very important battle in military history, the Battle of Carre. The Parthians were fighting against the Romans. Now listen to this. The Romans had 50,000 troops, which is a lot. The Parthians only had 10,000, but 9,000 of those were horseback warriors with bows, okay? They were horseback warriors with bows. Who won the battle? The Parthians destroyed the Romans. Though they only have one-fifth of their numbers, they destroyed the Romans. They killed 20,000 Romans. They took 10,000 Romans prisoner. And you know how many people they lost? 38. Okay? It's one of the most devastating battles in Roman military history when they were destroyed by these riders on these horses with these bows. And it was because they could move and shoot at the same time, whereas the Romans just mainly had foot soldiers, okay? And so it was much more difficult. And that was burned into their mind in Roman military history, okay? So the Parthians, and they had a bunch of battles like that, but that's the big one that sticks out in history. The, the, the Romans saw the Parthians as an enemy, and so I think part of what's going on here is there's this judgment of uh, military conquest against the followers of the beast, the followers of Rome, okay? Next, you have the red horse, He has a rider, and his rider has a sword, and he brings war. So it's very similar to the first one. Conquering is not the same thing as general bloodshed and war and conflict, but that's what's going on there. Then you have a black horse, okay? The black horse has a rider with scales, and he brings famine, okay? He brings famine. How do we know this? He says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. What he's doing is he has his scales, and he's yelling out the cost of these things, and they are eight to ten times the normal cost of these things in the first century, okay? So what he is talking about is famine, economic downturn, a huge, uh, you know, a huge depression, and these kind of things, that part of God's judgment includes things like famine and economic downturn, Okay, so that's fascinating there. And then lastly, you have the pale, ho- the pale horse. Has a rider whose name is Death, and what does he bring? He brings that very thing. He brings death. Now, there are different translations here when it talks about pale horse. The Greek word is chloros, okay, chloros. What is chloros? Chloros is like this light grayish-green color. It's the color of a bloated dead body. That's literally what the color is, okay? So sometimes it'll say an ashen horse or a pale horse or something like that. The idea, the Greek, or the Greek word here, chloros, is the idea of a dead body colored horse, a greenish gray after somebody's been dead for a while color and its rider is death. Now, Zach, what do we do with all these weird horses and these kind of things? Here's all you need to know. This is simply poetic language to talk about God's judgment. God's judgment on his enemies financially, through death, through war, through sickness, whatever it might be. But this is not the first place these guys appear. Okay, again, this is new to us, but it's not new to the Jews. 
Horses of different color are mentioned in Zechariah 6. If you want to read that later, in Zechariah 6, there are horses of different color. They're actually more horse chariots than just individual horses, but it's the same idea. Now, what do they do in Zechariah 6? They are sent out to judge the enemies of God's people. In Zechariah, God sends these out as these, uh, you know, kind of symbolic judgments against uh, the enemies of Israel, and here you have the same thing against the enemies of God's people. Next, the dragon. China. I'm kidding. It's not China. The dragon is the devil. How do we know this? Again, Revelation just directly tells us. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, okay, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels, i.e. demons, were thrown down with him. Notice, by the way, that this text very clearly says that what was happening in the garden was demonic. Snakes don't talk. I don't know if you know that or not. So if one does, something demonic's happening. That's not a normal thing. I've had people say, Zach, did the animals talk in the garden? No, this isn't fairy tale land. The reason the serpent's talking is because he's possessed by a demon. That's the idea. And here's who that demon is. It is the devil. Now, notice a few things. Notice that the dragon gives authority to the beast. Okay? This beastly evil kingdom that's oppressing God's people is fueled by Satan, is fueled by the devil. Okay? That is why he is called the prince of the power of the air, that he is the one who's in charge of the sons of disobedience. That's the idea. Okay? Does that mean every lost person has, is demonized? No, it does not mean that. But it does mean that if you don't know Christ, you are under generally the power of the evil one. You don't belong to Christ's kingdom. You belong to the devil's kingdom. Okay? So that doesn't mean you're an Agent Smith, but you are still plugged into the matrix, if you want to say it that way. If you've never seen the matrix, please go see it. It's brilliant. Next. Uh, you also need to notice that the dragon is eventually defeated, okay? That the, the dragon is eventually defeated. What's weird is there's a sense in which he's thrown down and he's really angry, but he's still going. And then he's ultimately defeated at the end where he's thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever and ever. Fun fact, the devil doesn't run hell. God runs hell, okay? The devil is not the one in hell that's like poking you with his big pitchfork when it's hot. He's suffering too, okay? He's suffering, Hell is God's hell, and, uh, and so notice that the devil is suffering in hell. It's not like uh, he's ruling in hell and everything is great. Uh, rather, he is being punished. There's a great line in Paradise Lost, Milton's Paradise Lost, where the devil says that it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, you don't have that option. You can serve in heaven or you can serve in hell by being judged, but you will serve, okay? But you will serve. Next, the beast. Okay, now this is a good one. This is a good one. A lot of weird things happen here with the beast, Okay. Some people are going to say it's something weird like uh, Saddam or uh, something like that. Uh, Martin Luther thought that it was the Pope, obviously, because he's the one that's putting himself up to be worshipped in the place of God as he's the vicar of Christ on earth, whatever it might be. Uh, none of those things probably would have made sense to the original authors. So let me give you what I think the beast is clearly, and I'll tell you why I think that. The beast represents the political and military power of Rome slash the Roman emperor. Of Rome slash the Roman emperor. Let me read this description of the beast, and I'll tell you why I think that the beast in Revelation is actually talking about Rome or one of or all of the Roman emperors, okay? By the way, I often wonder, people will like put 666 on their screen name or their like rock star will paint it on their guitar. I think if they knew that it was Rome, it would be less cool. But uh, Revelation 13, one through three. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. The sea is seen as a scary place to the Jews, 
okay? God judges everyone with the sea in the days of Noah. The spirit has to bring peace to the sea in creation and revelation. Uh, Leviathan is in the sea. God has to tell the sea you can come this far and no further. God judges the Egyptians by killing him in the sea. Elsewhere in Revelation, it'll say, though, the sea will be no more. It doesn't mean that Jesus hates the beach. It means that this demonic, evil kind of stuff will be done. But notice that the beast comes out of this place of the death, this place of mystery, this place of scary stuff. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon, the devil, gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Pay attention to that. I'm going to come back to that later when I tell you who I think the beast is. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Why do I think the beast in Revelation is the Roman Empire slash some Roman emperor? A few reasons. The beast in Daniel. So if we look at where beasts are used elsewhere in the Bible, Scripture interprets Scripture. The beast elsewhere in Daniel represents oppressive political nations. The imagery of a beast in Revelation is taken from Daniel and probably refers to the, uh, an oppressive political nation as well. So when I see where beasts are used in the Old Testament, they're used as political nations that oppress God's people, like Babylon. And so now he's referencing beast again to an audience that would have known their Old Testament. And so they're probably thinking, what is oppressing God's people now? Rome. Rome is the new Babylon. By the way, Rome is called Babylon in Revelation, the great harlot of Babylon. Anyway, those two are equated. Next. The beast having seven heads and ten horns may be a reference to one of two things. One, Rome was known as the city on seven hills, okay? That's what it's known for. You know how every state has their little motto like, Oklahoma, it's okay, or whatever it might be. Rome, what you would have had on the back of your horse or something in Rome is some sort of a bumper sticker that said, city on, a, city on seven hills, right? The city on seven hills. And so that might be why he has seven heads. The other reason that he might have seven heads or 10 horns, scholars try to figure out how many Roman emperors would have gone on before John's time, okay? So some think it's Nero, Galba, Altho, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titus, and uh, Domitian, or 10 rulers from Augustus or Julius Caesar to around the time of John's writing. So it's either, it's, it's probably a reference to Rome, either to the fact that it's called the city on seven hills, or to the fact of it, how many Roman emperors it had had during this time, during this time of persecution and during this time of its advancement and slaughter of the nations, okay? Another reason I think that it is Rome, the beast has a false prophet, okay? We're gonna talk about that in a second. There's not just one beast in Revelation, there's a second beast, okay? The beast has a false prophet that tells others to follow the beast. He's kind of the hype man for the beast. When the beast goes to a party, the false prophet beast goes in first. And he's like, and presenting the beast. And then they come in and he does a mic drop and that's kind of what's going on. And so uh, if people don't follow the beast, they cannot be part of the economic system and they risk greater persecution. Christians in the first century are being persecuted by Rome for not honoring Caesar as Lord and they get persecuted in commerce and some are even killed for their faith. So I think, that, uh, I think that that is another reference again to why I think Rome is the beast, but I have a few more. The beast has blasphemous names written on it. Why does the beast have blasphemous names? Perhaps because it's claiming worship for itself instead of God, okay? Uh, we, I showed this in a sermon one time a long time ago. I showed a coin from the first century of uh, Augustus Caesar where it called him Divine Augustus, okay, on the coin. The Roman emperor was somebody that you worshiped, you offered a sacrifice to. This is one of the reasons why Christians are persecuted in the first century. It was seen as being unpatriotic. Everyone was supposed to take a little grain sacrifice, say, curious Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, and then you wouldn't be persecuted. 
but the Christians can't say Caesar is Lord because only Jesus is Lord. And so what do I do? And they get persecuted. And so I think that the beast, again, is uh, blasphemous because it is claiming divine status. It is claiming to be God or like God, okay? Next, the mark of the beast, 666. Let's talk about what this means. What I'm about to tell you, I don't know with certainty. I don't know for sure. But I think it's the best guess of what the name means, okay? There's a lot of different views on what this name means. Some people think that it's just one step below seven, right? That, uh, that it's just this uh, kind of... Uh, you know, seven's the number of perfection, so it's three repeating sequences of the number one below seven. You could make that case. I don't think that's a strong case. You don't have 777 used elsewhere or something like that in Revelation uh, or whatever. Other people think that it's the mark of humanity. Mankind was created on the sixth day, so this is the ultimate triumph of man trying to rebel against God. The problem is, is that when you see 666, it's linked to this unholy trinity that doesn't involve humanity. It just involves like the beast and the devil and the false prophet, so it has nothing to do with humanity uh, or whatever it might be. So I don't know exactly why, but I'll tell you why I think what I think about the number 666. In Greek, you don't have numbers, okay? Today, on your keyboard, when you type, you have letters and you have numbers at the top. These are called letters. These are called Arabic numerals. Guess when they come up? In the Arabic world, hundreds of years later, okay? How did you write numbers in the first century? You had to use letters, okay? You didn't have a separate set of numbers. Even if you look in our Greek New Testament today where it says 666, it just has three different Greek letters, okay? And so uh, they used letters as numbers, so if, uh, if my name was ABC, and let's say A stands for one, two stand, B stands for two, and C stands for three, what is my number? Six. Oh, there it is again. I'm just kidding. Uh, right? So if you assign a number to each letter, and then eventually you go by multiples of 10 and multiples of 100, and you can combine them, and you have a whole way of writing numbers by using letters, okay? This is not weird Bible code stuff. This is how they did numbers. You could do that, or if you were Roman, you would know Roman numerals, Right? Let's all count our Roman numerals. I, 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 V, 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 I, V, I, I. That's how you have to count, okay? So what they're doing is they're using letters as numbers, okay? What does 666 spell? What, what, what name that they might have thought when you take the letters of that name spells 666? Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero spells 666. That's the hint that he gives. The name is the name of a man. Wink, wink, Jewish readers who are listening to this and count this way. The city on seven hills. So I think he's making a reference to Nero Caesar, this great persecutor of Christians who was the Roman emperor. Now, I have another reason that I think that, and I think this one's really strong, and I think this is the strongest case against other readings of 666, okay? There is a variant in your Bible. It will say this down at the bottom. Some texts say 616. If I take somebody who holds some other view, and I say, why is this a variant there? They'll say, oh, well, it's just a variant. It's a variant that spells Caesar Nero in the one other alternate spelling that it has. That's a really strong case to say that it's Nero Caesar. You have 666, and then the one place where we have variants spells an alternate version of his name. If there were just going to be an accident from some scribe, that would be very ironic if that were the, uh, the thing they came up with. So let me explain that to you this way, by using our secret flippy board. Okay? Let me explain it this way. Would you say in English, uh, ice cube? Hand me an uh, ice cube. Would you? Maybe if you're from Arkansas. We wouldn't say that though, right? We would say what? An ice cube. Why do we say an ice cube? Because to break up these two vowel sounds, we put a consonant, right? We put this consonant so we don't have to say uh, uh together. We don't have to put two vowel sounds together. We say an ice cube, okay? Or here, would you say, hand me an ball? 
Would you? No, you would say, hand me a ball. You don't need that there because this is a consonant. The same thing is true in Greek. In Greek, at the end of a lot of words, you have what's called a movable new. It's an in, kind of like our word an or a, that you change depending on what's next in the sentence. 666 spells Caesar Nero with the movable new. 616 spells Caesar Nero without it, okay? So that's a pretty strong case for, I think, saying why it has to be Caesar Nero. Again, I'm not sure, but I have even more reasons. Let me give you a few more. Look at this next one, number three. The head of the beast is said to have been wounded by a sword, and here's something you may not know. Nero committed suicide with a sword. Other interpretations of 666 don't take that into account, okay? Nero committed suicide by falling on a sword, and here it says that one of these heads, one of these Roman emperors on the beast, has committed has, uh, this mortal wound from a sword, okay? Revelation 13, 14, if you look at the end, it says, the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Why does it say that? Look at the fourth point. There was a common legend in the first century that Nero had come back to life after he died. It's called the Nero Redivivus myth. He's like Elvis, okay? When Elvis dies, he starts popping up everywhere. Starts popping up everywhere. That's like Nero. There was this popular thing. This is not something I'm making up. Many Greek scholars and, new, and uh, early Christianity scholars will mention this. After Nero died, there was this fear that he might not really be dead because he was such an evil emperor and he was so crazy and he was so sexually immoral and all these things. And so a myth arose that he had actually come back from the dead. Notice the same thing is true of the beast. Revelation 13, 3. One of its heads, which again, I think are Roman emperors, seemed to have a mortal wound, which means he's died. That's what mortal means. But its mortal wound was healed. Okay? The passage we just saw said that he was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Okay? And then lastly, Revelation 13, 18 says that this number 666 corresponds to a man, and that would make sense with Nero. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay? So it could generally be human rebellion against God. It could generally be this unholy trinity that is less than perfect, which is fighting against the true trinity. Right, the, the, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet fighting against Father, Son, and Spirit. That could be the case. I think that there is more evidence, though, that John is trying to say this is the Roman emperor slash Nero, okay, because of those other reasons. Ro- Nero killed himself with a sword. The beast has the, his head wounded with a sword. Nero was thought to come back to life. Same thing said of the beast. Nero's name spells 666, and even the alternate spelling spells 616. To me, that's not perfect. I, I don't know this with certainty, but it seems stronger than alternate views. The second beast, let's talk about that. There's another beast here in Revelation. Represents those who went about spreading Roman propaganda and trying to get people to submit to Rome and worship the emperor. Revelation 13, 11 through 14, I gotta hurry up. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth and it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Notice that, okay? The devil appears as an angel of light. He will often look beautiful like everything's okay, but what does he say, okay? Okay? When the Mormons show up on your door, they look really nice, like they've got it all together, but how do they speak? Like a dragon, right? So he looks like lamb, but he speaks like a dragon because he's a false prophet. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. By the way, the Roman emperors all had statues made of them. Okay, they all had statues made of them. Typically, when you offered your grain sacrifice, you would do it to the statue. Who is the 144,000? 
Okay, this is a big, uh, big question a lot of people have. It's not Jews that got saved during the tribulation. If you grew up in a left behindy style church, that's not what it stands for. Let me explain what the 144,000 are. They represent Christians who remain faithful to the Lamb. They represent Christians who remain faithful to the Lamb. Having 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes is meant to highlight the completeness of God's people. Okay? Like the number seven, the number thousand is a number of completeness. We'll see that later with a millennium. They are God's eschatological and metaphorical army. Okay? Not, not a literal army. You're not going to literally do jihad. You're not going to do the crusades. The idea, though, is that they are God's eschatological and metaphorical army, which stands against the beast. Now, notice this. Who is mentioned first? Who leads the pack of the 144,000? Judah does. Judah's not the firstborn. Who's the firstborn among the 12 tribes? Who is it? Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn, but he's not the one leading the pack. It's Judah. Why? Because Jesus comes from the line of Judah and his humanity. Okay? And so Judah is the one that leads the pack. They are the church militant. That is the church that is faithful on earth, the church that is fighting the enemy on earth. That's who the 144,000 are. Let me read you this quote by Grant Osborne. He's got a pretty good Revelation commentary. He's a New Testament scholar. He says this, the list of tribes stresses the completeness of the people of God seen as the messianic army of the Lion of Judah. They have been sealed by God from the outpouring of his wrath and given a twofold task. One, being militant witnesses for the eternal gospel as they call the nations to repentance. And two, participating in the defeat of the dragon, both by martyrdom and by forming the army of the victorious Christ at his return. Okay? Now, you'll notice that these 144,000 are called virgins. Okay? That does not mean literal virgins as if it's somehow bad to get uh, married. True love mates. Okay? True love mates. Uh, the fact that they are virgins is not about literal virginity. It's a reference to moral purity. In Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14, there's this list of what you have to do to purify yourself when you're camping out for war. Why? Because in the Old Testament, your holiness and God's blessing on your military victories go together. So before you fight the Philistines, you better purify yourself, you better offer a sacrifice, you better pray, because spiritual warfare and physical warfare go together. And so what you would do if you were part of this army is you would cleanse yourself before going to battle, uh, and so that's probably the reference them to them being virgins. The idea is that they're holy. They haven't sold off into the prostitution of the harlot and, uh, and these kind of things, okay? Also, one more thing to mention, because there is a number given, 144,000. Where's that used in the Old Testament with all these guys? In the Old Testament, tribes are numbered to take a census for war. You'll see this a lot, that tribes are numbered to take a census for war. This is God's army, meaning those who are faithful to Christ. Next, the harlot slash Babylon slash Rome, if you want to put that in there, okay? Who is the harlot? You see, the book of Revelation is a tale of two cities, it's a story about these two different women, okay? You have one woman who is the bride of Christ. You see this towards the end of Revelation, okay? This city, this new Jerusalem, is also Christ's bride. Why? Are we Christ's bride, these people, or is it this city? It's both because we dwell in God's city. New Jerusalem is filled with New Jerusalemites, i.e. Christians, okay? And so you have this one woman, and she, is, she belongs to the Lamb. She's clean, She's spotless, she's righteous, and she's wearing what? Fine linen, which was a mark of purity. She's in her wedding dress. She has a white wedding dress. She's pure, she's clean, she's spotless. She is the bride of the lamb. But then over here, you've got a different lady, okay? And she's not quite as holy and pure. She is said to be not the bride of the lamb or something like that. She is said to be a harlot, this great prostitute, this whore of Babylon 
that is uh, filling the world with her decadence. She rides the beast. That's not a good sign, right? Jesus shows up on a white horse, purity, conquering. This lady's riding that scary, weird beast that's killing people, okay? Has bones in his teeth. It's really disgusting. She is unclean and sexually immoral, okay? It talks about uh, making the nations drunk with her sexual immorality, with her decadence and her paganism. She's idolatrous. And what clothes is she wearing? So, so the, the, the wife of the lamb, she's wearing linen. She's got her wedding dress on. It's pure, it's white, it's beautiful. What is this woman wearing? Oh, she's wearing scarlet. She's wearing seductive clothing. She's got a little bit too much makeup on. Her skirt's a little bit too short. She is meant to symbolize the decadence and the sexual immorality and the paganism of Rome. And by the way, everybody belongs to one of these two women. You're either Christ's bride, the church, and you are clean and spotless and he marries you and you are on the side of victory. You're on the right side of history, if you want to say it that way. Uh, Or you belong to this other woman. You give yourself over to idolatry and sexual immorality and you're fueled by the beast, which is fueled by the devil, okay? The two witnesses. There's this uh, scene in the book of Revelation with two witnesses. Here's all that is, okay? All the two witnesses symbolize is the church and our witness to the world. How do I know that? There's a reference when it talks about these two witnesses to two lampstands. We've already seen that two lampstands, we've seen lampstands are the churches. Revelation has already told us this. So the idea of these witnesses is that they are proclaiming the gospel and being faithful and they get killed for their faith and it's meant to show what the church is called to do. The church and our witness to the world. Two more things. The millennium. The millennium. Now, let me say this, lest you think this lesson's going to last a lot longer. We have three complete lessons on the millennium. It's one of the most weird, hard to understand parts of Revelation, even throughout church history. And so I'm not going to say much about it now because we're going to have three full lessons on it. So I'm not copying out and not giving a view. I will give you a view and a strong view later on. But right now, uh, let me just mention a few things about it. It's said to be a thousand-year reign of Christ. It's mentioned in Revelation 20. There are many different ways to interpret this. Does Christ come back before this millennial reign? Does he come back after this millennial reign? Does he come back uh, and this millennial reign is not really a real literal millennium? It's just kind of a figure for the church age? Does he, there's all these different interpretations of what that means, uh, but just know that we're going to get to that later. And you need to know that the thousand years doesn't have to literally be a thousand years. So sometimes you'll talk to somebody and they'll say, the tribulation can't be throughout church history. It has to be this seven-year period because the Bible says it's seven years. And you say, okay, so that needs to be taken literally. Uh, What about these thousand years? That needs to be taken literally. What about the 144,000? Oh, man, gotcha. You don't want to misapply and say sometimes these numbers have to be literal in Revelation, but sometimes they don't. You have to somehow be consistent or make a case for why you're changing those. And then lastly, the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem. It's an alternate city contrasted with Rome, where God again dwells with his people. Notice the imagery reflects that of Eden, okay? Where is the first place that God fellowships with mankind? In the Bible, Garden of Eden, right? Why? Because sin does not separate us from the presence of God. After the fall, heaven and earth are split. Sin separates us from God's presence. You don't get to just go before a holy God because you're a sinner. You have to have a priest or a sacrifice from the New Testament, Christ, okay? What you again see in Revelation is that heaven and earth again come together, that heaven and earth meet, that uh, there, there's a new Eden, a better Eden, and it's a city. And you'll notice that this new Jerusalem has a lot of the same imagery as the Garden of Eden. When it talks about the Garden of Eden, it talks about the gold that's in the land. And guess what happens? The streets are made of gold. It talks about the tree of life, 
And here in, in the, the New Jerusalem, there's a tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, that water comes through, etc. And so there's all this imagery that's meant to say mission accomplished. What man messed up, the God-man has fixed, and man again dwells with God, no, no longer in a garden, but in a city. Why? Because the creation mandate was to subdue the earth for the glory of God. Make the whole garden world a garden, or make the whole garden world a city world. That's kind of the idea, and you see that accomplished there. Now, we'll talk more about that in a lesson we have coming up on uh, the eternal state, what, what happens to you after you die, and what is eternity like. But in the meantime, Jeff, come on up here with some of those sweet questions. All right, question number one. In Exodus, the people of God did not suffer the plagues. Will Christians suffer through the plagues of Revelation? I'll give a quick thought and then turn it over to you. So uh, a lot of that depends on the way that you read uh, the book of Revelation, as we talked about. Uh, There are various ways to read it. You can read of uh, tribulation being this ongoing thing that the church is going to experience throughout time. Uh, Some people take it very literally to refer to, as Zach was saying, this seven-year period that's sometime in the future. And, uh, And so what makes this more difficult is because we have all of these different views on what the tribulation is, when it is, how long it lasts, all these kinds of things. We'll talk a little bit about that in a few weeks as we talk about tribulation theories and things like the, uh, the rapture, uh, how does that fit in and, uh, and so forth. And so what I think is that tribulation that you see throughout uh, the book of Revelation is something that is an ongoing reality. I think it, uh, it seems to escalate uh, towards the end of time, whenever that is, whenever Jesus uh, returns. Uh, but I think that you see this pattern of the church actually going through tribulation, that uh, the scripture actually, the one promise that it has for us is that it promises that we are going to suffer. I don't see why that would somehow not be the case. What has always been the case for God's people is they always go through suffering. I don't see why that would somehow not be the case uh, in the context of, uh, of Revelation. Uh, not only that, but you also see references to the church as martyrs and these kinds of things showing that they are somehow being persecuted. They're somehow uh, experiencing the effects of, uh, of tribulation. So those are some initial thoughts. Anything to add? Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, that statement's not exactly true. If you don't mark your door with the, the blood, uh, you do have your kid get killed, even if you're Jewish. But first of all, let, let me say it this way. What a lot of people who believe in a rapture, a pre-tribulational rapture will say, is that God has to take his people out of the world first because Christ is not a wife beater. God can't pour out his wrath on Christians because Christ has already died to appease God's wrath. That's what they'll say. And they'll say, like in the Old Testament, when God pours out his wrath on Egypt, he doesn't pour it out on Israel, he pours it out on Egypt. Okay, so, so let me clarify what happens. When God pours out his wrath on Egypt, guess what Egypt does to Israel? They pour out their wrath on Israel. So all of a sudden now they have to make more bricks using less straw and their work gets harder and there's more whippings and beatings. So God's not pouring out his wrath on his people. He's pouring out his wrath on his enemies. They hate that, so they persecute God's people. That's true both in the Old Testament. That's also true in Revelation. God has no wrath for you if you're a Christian. He does have wrath for his enemies, non-Christians. And when he pours out his plagues, seals, trumpets, bowls, famine, whatever, on them, they get super mad, and so therefore they then oppress you and cut your head off, and you die as a martyr for the lamb. 
okay? So we're never saying that God is pouring out his wrath on Christians. God's wrath is appeased on the cross. Rather, God is pouring out his wrath on evil people, and evil people will have wrath towards you, and they will harm you, but God is not pouring out his wrath on you directly. That's good. So uh, second question, is the destruction of the earth in Revelation physical destruction or metaphorical? Let me Clarify something, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. So uh, the difference, so physical destruction versus metaphorical destruction, technically those are not opposites. The, the opposite of metaphorical destruction is literal uh, destruction. And, uh, and so I wouldn't say that the judgments that you see in Revelation are necessarily literal, as if the earth is only going to be one-third exactly destroyed, and then one, uh, I'm sorry, one-fourth and then one-third uh, exactly destroyed or, uh, or something like that. There is symbolism there, there is metaphor, there's figurative language and so forth, and so I think it's both metaphorical and it's also physical. There are physical effects uh, in terms of earthquakes and uh, the, uh, the destruction of God's enemy there, so there are both physical and metaphorical symbolic sort of elements to it. Anything to add to that? Yeah, I, so... <clears throat> God is going to renew the earth. So when we talk about a new heavens and new earth, we don't mean brand new, like uh, he just completely scraps everything he's created and he's like, forget that, forget about redeeming it. Let's go to plan B. I'll just recreate everything. The idea is that it's purged, it's purified. That's the idea I think in Peter with it being purged as if through fire. The idea is that God is somehow going to take the present world and he is going to redeem it. He's gonna get rid of everything that's evil. He's gonna cast out lost people. He's gonna cast out demons. There's be no more sickness, no more creep, uh, crying, weeping, pain. So he's gonna take the current world, but he's gonna redeem it. So it's new in the sense that it's no longer sin-scarred, but it's not brand new, just like your resurrected body. God is going to redeem and resurrect your body, and it will be your current body. You will still be you. You will still be male in the resurrection if you're male now. You'll still be female in the resurrection if you're female. You'll still be whatever race you are. Jesus remains Jewish when he's resurrected. But it's new in the sense that it's no longer susceptible to corruption. It's no longer uh, broken like your old body was. So it's still you. So there's an element that continues, and then there's an element that's new, just like with, I think, the new heavens and new earth. So. Next question. This is a good question. Uh, as were the others. Um, <laughs> but the ones that don't get read. Ooh. I'm kidding. We don't. Okay. E- email us. I understand that we shouldn't read Revelation through the lens of current events. But if the events in Revelation are happening, kind of uh, are happening currently or will happen in the future or kind of always happen, shouldn't we still look for one like Nero today or one like the Parthians today? Uh, so forth. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think looking for one like Nero is very different from saying this one is the one specific beast in Revelation. The people that get weird with end time stuff is they read the beast and they say, that's got to be bin Laden, something like that, right? Or that's got to be monster energy drink because the M looks like three sixes in some other weird language or whatever it is. People do these kind of things, okay? I think that gets into crazy town. It is okay to say the beast is wrong. Okay, 666, I think, it refers to Nero. The Christians being persecuted are Christians in the first century. And how do we apply this today? By the way, that's what we do with the entire Bible, right? So Jesus is, not, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, and we apply that to us today when we're like her. Or Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and because we're his disciples, we apply that to us today. You, it's always right to say, what does this originally mean, and how do I apply that to my life today? That's totally fine. So yes, I think you can say uh, the church is under a bunch of beasts, political nations that oppress Christians. Yes, the church is under many false prophets, any national propaganda that makes it look like your country is where salvation is found. 
uh, not in Christ, but rather just through its military might, good economic policies, et cetera. You've seen some of this in the American church where we kind of mix Jesus with Merca, and that becomes a problem as well, okay? Uh, that's totally fine. What people do, though, when they're looking, there's a difference between saying, am I generally under these things today and trying to become too specific? Can I say there are beasts today? Sure. But when I start trying to pick and choose, go pull out my map and pick every nation that I think is or is not a beast, it becomes too specific. Okay, so uh, anyway, I don't know if you have a follow-up for that. But. Yeah, I would, just, I would just mention it's kind of similar to the way that you read the Old Testament and you see these, uh, these figures that uh, remind you, as we're looking backwards, it reminds you of Christ. It's called typology. And, uh, and so Joseph is a type of of Christ. That doesn't mean he's a kind of Christ. It means he's like Christ in certain ways. He is uh, betrayed by his brothers. He is enslaved. He's all of these sorts of things that Jesus is also experiencing. Jesus is a type of Isaac. He is the firstborn son that sacrificed all of these sorts of things. So we don't go back to the Old Testament and say, Joseph is Jesus or Isaac is Jesus or something like that. No, they, they kind of represent Jesus. They are like him in certain ways. Likewise, if you move the, uh, the theology of Revelation into the future, there is a sense in which you can look if you are living in the, uh, the 1940s and you look and you say, Hitler is like the beast. He's acting very beastly in this. If you are living uh, under the, uh, the, the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s in Cambodia, you would say Pol Pot is very much like the beast in this particular uh, sense. And so, uh, Throughout history, we can see those who are like Nero, like the beast, and whatever it means. That does not mean, though, that that particular reference there is specifically Hitler, specifically Pol Pot, specifically Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin or whoever it, uh, it might be. And so I think it's helpful to, to recognize that sort of distinction. Um, next, if the four horsemen, if the horsemen are God's judgment, are they themselves good or evil? Um, to answer that question, I think it's really helpful to, to recognize that it depends on whether or not you're taking that as a sort of a literal being or if that's a figurative sort of thing. And so there's a way that you can read that and you can think that's an angel. You can think that's a demon. If it's an angel, then it's good. If it's a demon, then it's bad. There's also a way that you take that that doesn't really kind of give it any being whatsoever, that it's just a symbolic sort of thing, that there's not actually uh, a, uh, uh, an actual created being who's riding on a horse, that's just a symbol of God's uh, judgment. And so whether they're good or bad depends on if it's even symbolic in the first place. Anything to add to that? Yeah, I think it is primarily a symbol. Is God sending out some sort of angelic beings to do that? Possibly. I mean, you do have uh, angels br uh, very much used in apocalyptic literature, especially in Revelation. So could those be angels slash demons? Very, that's very possible. Uh, that might even be likely. When you say, is it good or bad? I think it depends on from what perspective. God sometimes in the Old Testament will take a demon to attack the enemies of Israel. And if you say, is God sending out that demon good or bad? Well, it's good ultimately for God's people and it's good for God's glory. It's not good for that nation because that's going to go poorly for them. And so I think it depends on what you mean. Is it good that God uses angels or demons because he's sovereign over both? Is it good that God uses those things to uh, attack his enemies? Yes. If you're his enemies, are those things good? No, famine and war and conquering and all these things are bad things. So some of it depends on the perspective when you say, is it good or bad to whom? Uh, if you're serving with uh, preschool during the service, go ahead and make your way out. We'll tackle, we, had, we just have one more question that came in, uh, at least whenever I came up here. And, uh, and so we'll tackle that and, uh, and then we'll be done. Uh, last question, why does the false prophet come from the land while the beast comes from the sea? 
does the land represent uh, the church? So I was typing, I might not have heard uh, you talk about this, but the sea in uh, throughout Hebrew literature and throughout a lot of ancient literature re- uh, refers to chaos. That's part of the reason why the beast is coming out of the sea, because there's this idea of uh, that is the chaotic realm. You think through the Old Testament and all of the different chaos and destruction that comes from water, the flood, the uh, the destruction of, uh, of Egypt, the Red Sea, and so forth. And so uh, any thoughts as to why the false prophet comes to the land versus the sea? Uh, so a few things. First of all, I don't think the false prophet is someone coming from the church. I think very clearly in the first century it's Roman pro- propaganda. But again, I also read Revelation in such a way to where this is also a symbol that can happen several other times in the church. So we'll see this in First John, that many antichrists have come, and they come up in the church, and they're wolves, they're false prophets, they're not really Christians, and so that might be the case. I don't remember that the sea has to do with what's demonic typically, and so that's why the beast comes out of the sea the land might have something to do with Roman conquest, uh, but I don't remember. I used to know this, and then I got married and have kids, and I lost my powers. And so uh, I, I can look it up for you. I, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't done Revelation in a while, but anyway. That's great. All done. Do sure. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you for our time together, and we thank you for the book of Revelation. I pray that we would walk the tightrope of not being scared of this book and not reading it at all, Uh, versus us being too confident that we just know exactly what every little symbol stands for. I think there's there's meant to be a mystery here. There are many things you have not revealed to us, uh, like like how you can be a trinity, how we can make real decisions, though you are sovereign over all things. Uh, But you have revealed certain things to us in Revelation, the entire book. You've written us that we might understand it. And so we confess that there is mystery with the symbol. We're not exactly sure every little detail of every symbol. But we confess on the whole, we understand that this book is talking about King Jesus and how we need to be faithful. And when we're persecuted and oppressed, that we need to see things from heaven's perspective because in your throne room, you're being worshiped where the, uh, the heavenly creatures and uh, the 24 elders and everybody is bowing down and worshiping you and the Lamb. And so we thank you that one day Christ comes back and he treads the winepress of his fury, that he, uh, that he makes his enemies like grapes in a winepress and smashes them and the blood is up to the horse's bridles. That is a violent image, but it should give us a tremendous amount of uh, encouragement to know vindication is coming. One day, everyone who's wronged us will stand in judgment. One day, everything in the world will be judged. One day you'll cleanse everything. There'll be no more pedophilia. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more adultery. There'll be no more of these things. And so we ask that, uh, that you would help us live faithfully until then. We ask that by having a vision of the future, we might live more faithfully in the present. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.